in terms of wellness as a whole within the school, you know, I think that push for social emotional learnings within the school is just so important, um, not just for our students, but for our teachers' well-being as well. Hello, and welcome to Working Well, a podcast series with a diverse group of educators from across the country discussing how to improve the well-being of the workforce. I'm Mindy Wiseman with the National Center on Safe Supportive Learning Environments, or Nestle. In this episode, Nestle Training Specialist Melanie Goodman speaks with Elvina Charlie, school psychologist for the Kiunta Unified School District of the Navajo Nation of Northeastern Arizona. They discuss her journey to become a school psychologist, the importance of having a bilingual Navajo psychologist in the Navajo school system, and incorporating mindfulness into her work with students and staff. But they began their conversation talking about her family and cultural history. So I am Elvina Charlie, Elvina Charlie in Shia. Nasht eje trabahan shno tachitni bashishchin, fadichitni dashchiokia ani dashinale. So it is customary, a traditional way to be able to introduce yourself with your four clans. As Dinette people, we are a matrilineal society. The first clan is our mother's clan. And then our second clan is our father's clan. The translation for the two first clans, my mother's clan is Zuni Edgewater. And my, my father's clan is the Red Street people. I'm originally, I was born and raised um, in Chinle, Arizona, which is the central uh, part of the Navajo Reservation. Our land exceeds three states. And so in those three states, we are on our traditional territory, which uh, the Navajo people have been blessed to have our ancestors be able to advocate um, for us to return when they were taken from this region by Kit Carson. They're in the encampment of our Navajo people. I believe it was 1864 to 1868. That is a traumatic event in which we were forced from our lands. Um, we were forced into Boquillas Redondo, where we were, um, our ancestors were kept as an encampment, war prisoners, essentially. During that time, our courageous chiefs and leaders, you know, neg- negotiated our return back to our land. Um, we refer to that encampment as Hawelde, and that's referred to as a place of suffering. That is a part of our history as Diné people, and we continue to heal from those historical traumas that have been imposed upon us, and we have found a way, essentially, to live in both worlds. As a school psychologist, being bilingual as well, as I was raised by my grandmother who did not have a day of education in her life. She was a caretaker in her family. Margie Corman, and then my great-grandmother. Helen Walker and my grand, my great-grandfather, Raymond Walker. With that upbringing, being able to be raised by such strong women because my my mother was also trying to navigate the two worlds and so as a young mother she she gave me to my grandmother and my grandmother raised me 
she provided that real strong foundation for me in that language. I didn't recognize it till later, but truly is a deep blessing. I'm forever grateful to my mother and her strength and resilience to be able to do a selfless thing like that. You know, and my mother is Alice Gilbert, and she's also a special ed teacher for over 35 years. She just retired in the midst of COVID. She taught at um, Sebadake boarding school, which is one of the uh, government boarding schools that continue to be here on the reservation. So, and that's kind of propelled me on my journey to be able to be accessible within the schools. As how, a school is it, how is it that you decided to become a school psychologist? In the midst of my struggles as a okay. teenager, <laughs> uh, okay. trying to navigate life and kind of coming to the understanding of what education is going to do for me or how it's going to benefit me. I guess I really kind of struggle with the identity part. I remember my grandmother coming to school. I remember her coming to my class. And then I remember the students um, vividly like snickering. And she was dressed in her her uh, traditional attire. She always wore Navajo skirts. You know, she always had a, a bun. You know, she was just the perfect image of a Diné woman and just remembering the shame. I felt, even though it was a predominantly Navajo reservation school, a public school on the reservation, there was still that sense of shame. When I entered kindergarten as well, my first language was Navajo. I spoke broken English, you know. And so just the beginning of my educational experience and just that Western education way of saying you're not good enough. And so that story really kind of propelled me, you know, well, education's here to stay. My great grandma is actually, she worked for the BIA system as well. She worked as a doormaid and she worked on different aspects in the BIA government. But she's always told us that, you know, you do need to get education. So we knew education was important. And then also for my grandma, she was a caretaker and helped her her parents being able to take care of her sibling. You know, having that, I didn't go to school, you need to do this, you know. It's hard not having an education to support yourself. I think having a combination of those life experience and then coming to high school and realizing that I'm not learning anything. You know, in high school, you're dealing with identity, you're dealing with peer pressure, you're dealing with family drama and just different aspects that you're navigating. So in my junior year, I realized that I didn't learn anything in my high school and that I really needed to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. I made up my mind. I'm going to go to school and I'm going to help kid. At that time, I I was using drugs. I was, you know, abusing alcohol, you know, at some point, just really those emotions you have when you're kind of a teenager and trying to really understand who you are, not having anybody really in the school to. So to there understand. was no school psychologist. There was no school psychologist. There was a social worker and there was a counselor, but but not uh, in my experience, they were always preoccupied with something else. So it wasn't like you saw somebody in this role that was like, I want to do what that person's or I want to be like, it was just you imagined there's a need for help. And there's a role for that. And that's I'm going to figure out what that is and go for that. Exactly. Then I just was decided, you know, I want to go to school, started talking to the counselor and they're like, huh, well, you haven't really been serious about school, so (laughs) uh, that might be a problem. And I just thought, okay, well, but there has to be a way. And I, I, you know, I had one counselor who said, okay, well, we can give this a try. And I applied to a community school. I knew I didn't want to go to where 
the rest of my friends were going <laughs> because of that peer pressure part. So I applied to Utah. I applied there and I met with the lady that was the liaison, took care of the indigenous students area. And she she was like, we can do this, you know, so we'll just start from remediating your basic skills, you know, and we'll go from there. And that's how I began my journey in college. Journey. I, yeah, that's really interesting, yeah. you know, because we know that adolescence, you know, the one of the biggest ways that they can be supported is through relationships, right? And right. models and all of that. You didn't find that person until college, but you did eventually find that person who saw saw your potential and was willing to Yes. And it just so, takes out one person. Yeah, it's amazing, it's, isn't it? Yes. I mean, it's not, it's a very familiar, well, you know, better than me, it's a very familiar story. So I know you work in uh, various school settings, and now you're in this, what looks to be like a pretty large public school district, is it fairly? Yeah, it's, uh, uh, yeah, Kienta Unified yeah. School District is on uh, the Navajo Reservation. It's near the Utah border, and we are serving roughly over 1,500 students. Myself and my colleague, who's also a wonderful, strong Diné woman who's bilingual. The recruitment of Indigenous school psychologists was also so important to me and my uh, Indigenous American subcommittee is is a group under the Multicultural yes. Affairs Committee. Right, I did read about that. San Diego State University, which had the wonderful grant um, supporting school psychologists, school counselors. We read a lot of Indigenous scholars and we had a space for that discussion. And that was the first time actually to truly have a place on a university um, level, especially at San Diego State. So is that where you went to next, San Diego yeah. State, in other words? Yes. Anyway, that grant was at the time a Native American collaborators project. Um, that really inspired me. Me as a school psychologist, that feel itself is a very colonial practice, right? Mm -hmm. So how, as an Indigenous woman, am I going to go home and begin to put labels on our children to oppress them or, you know, so being able to voice that within that group and then being able to have that support. And I think that's helped me really want to be a voice and an advocate within our community. They just help facilitate my voice get stronger. Kayenta then, where you are now, that school, is it exclusively an Indigenous school? Um, It's, or it's not an exclusive, it's a public school. Okay. But it's on the reservation, so, so it's percentage. So uh, there's a large percentage of um, Navajo students. How many public schools are there on reservations in the country? Like, do you have any sense of that? How many? Um, how many schools? Well, exist? being the Navajo reservation is huge. So we have Arizona, New Mexico, and Utah. So we have a combination of public schools, community schools and then government schools. Okay, yeah. You and you worked in other in those settings it sounds like before you came. Yeah. Yeah, I I have worked at Rough Rock Community School for about a year and a half. When so it's I was a community school like a charter school? Yeah, it's like it's a it's ran under the Navajo Nation. So okay. the Navajo Nation does have an educational board. Um so they oversee the community schools. And then there's the schools. A lot of the BIE schools work directly with the government. So the community schools were run in that way until the Navajo Nation took that under their wings. Um, so there's just few government schools left. I'm not sure in terms of the numbers, oh, okay. but those are the three systems that are in operation to educate our, our community or our children. 
So I assume as a school psychologist in this setting um, that you're working directly with students like individually and maybe in groups. I'm also interested in both your kind of formal and informal uh, work with your colleagues, teachers, Mm -hmm. other professionals, practitioners in the school. Can you talk a little bit about about that, what what you're doing in that area, uh, whether it's kind of formal or informal with your colleagues around their issues, their balance, their well-being, you know, all of what you bring to your approach to wellness? So in terms of um, the work in wellness and in my service delivery as a school psychologist, being a Dine woman, and how do I frame that within the schools? How do I navigate that, you know, in terms of assistance space? Because as school psychologists, it, it's a well-known fact across the country, we are short on school psychologists. Yeah. We need more school psychologists within the field, but more as a part of the NAS initiative in the Indigenous, we really also want to emphasize the recruitment of Indigenous school psychologists. Because um, what we were finding is that uh, visibly here on the Navajo Reservation, there's a lot of non-natives that uh, work as um, consultants that come into our community for one day, assess and then leave without really inter- interaction with our community. As a part of our initiative, even across the nation, and we found that that was a problem. So we really wanted to recruit more relatives into this field. That's important. You know, you're not going to have a school psychologist that's visible within your community and be available how are you going to facilitate that support of wellness? And of course, there's all the other ethics that's attached to that. Really kind of starting off with that is that we need to make sure that our schools are supported, but then our staff is supported as well. It's interesting, you know, because in addition to these these conversations that I'm having, we are also producing a kind of a resource directory of podcasts and research, just all kinds of materials that are relevant to the topic of well-being. But in the process of doing the research to pull these uh, resources together, we, you know, we found over and over again, it was cited that this would be true of psychologists. They were talking about it as teachers being the most, one of the most difficult professions um, or one of the most stressful, especially today. And especially with all the pandemic consequences. And there was kind of a pushback on the idea that well-being and mindfulness and individual practice was the way to kind of address these issues on the stress that teachers are under. In fact, teachers were like, these are systemic issues. There needs to be work done at the systems level to create an environment where, you know, all of this is welcome and, and can happen in a, in a fluid way. In terms of wellness as a whole within the school, you know, I think that push for social emotional learnings within the school is just so important. Um, not just for our students, but for our teachers' well-being as well. In embarking on my journey of healing, I, I found mindfulness. I suffered uh, multiple losses within my family and was holding on to this immense grief that I had. I just delved into my work without suppressing the emotions and the grief and just putting myself in there and just working all these crazy hours and not realizing how that was impacting myself, but impacting my child as well. As professionals, it's very important to have that first awareness of being burnt out and being overloaded and then, you know, having that realization of creating more unnecessary suffering for yourself. In the name of helping others, you forget the most important person, which is yourself. 
And I found myself at a retreat, a mindfulness retreat, a meditation retreat, but really didn't know what to expect. But within that silence and within being able to bring, you know, awareness to my breath and just being present really just helped me to heal immensely. Well, in combination with other things in my own traditional ways as well, that put me on that journey of this is something that you just don't hold on to. This is something that you have to share. And so I was like, okay, well, I'm going to learn how to teach this and I'm going to help my community with this. And so I entered mindful schools I did my training there and every opportunity I get during the summer, I I continue to do my retreats. So Um, at the mindful, at mindful schools, is that oriented towards, you know, all different kinds of school professionals? Uh, Yes. So it's not just like school psychologists or teachers or everybody. It was a lot of educators, a lot of people that work with children. It was a combination of different professionals. It wasn't just school psychologists. So I entered that program and, and learned how to teach it to children. And so, and I brought that back. I mean, it really was impactful for me because this is um, Diné way of life. This is Diné way of teaching. This is a Diné way of being. Within the Buddhism teaching, you know, um, more specifically Tibetan, there's that real strong correlation there. And so that really struck a chord for me. So a lot of the words that the vocabulary, I began to translate that into my own language, being able to teach that anything that you bring or anything that you teach within our community, we have, it has to be meaningful. And it has to come from that cultural perspective. So when you say teach, who are you teaching in, in those, in that case? The children. And then later on, I did it for the teachers. There, I began just introducing the concept and being able to you know, do that uh, when we began a meeting. or And then here at Kienta, I was able to facilitate that same process for my colleagues in the midst of COVID. Did a lot of uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction um, process, doing chair yoga, being able to, you know, have that a safe space for them to be able to have the outlook because my colleagues were being impacted. We were all being impacted. Twice national level, our relatives were you know, being impacted by COVID. And is, we that, were, is that work still going on? I, I do my best to continue to hold those kinds of spaces, but it, it's less, it depends on who your director yeah. is. And then also just the demand on me as a professional as well. Um, as school psychologists, we have to navigate a lot of different things, you know, working, but we have to meet state mandates for timelines and so sometimes that makes it tough for us yeah. to to really have that rich, diverse service delivery. But more importantly, the consistency has maintained in terms of counseling my students. Sometimes from that transition to one school to the next or the transition administration, sometimes those things kind of impact how that consistency of it, but the holding of it in terms of having made those connections with some of the teachers and some of the colleagues that they understand that they can come to me if they need help. Mm-hmm. You're a resource so, for that. Yeah. So I know that in lots of industries, you know, kind of the unexpected 
benefit, so to speak, of the pandemic was that I think a lot it broke a lot of things and new things had to happen. This like whatever works attitude started to bubble up out of desperation or for whatever reason. So I wonder if some of that, some of the work that you were doing during the pandemic and others, or do you think some of that is here to stay? Like some of that work will continue to evolve generationally? That is my hope. Yes. Mm -hmm. As long as I'm in a space and a place and have the support from my administrator to do that type of work, it's always going to be there. Maybe the district feels or the teachers feel like, well, now I don't need it anymore because it's, you know, pandemic's over and we're okay. (laughs) But that stress of being within the school environment post-COVID and having to navigate all that our children came back with, we're still seeing the unfolding of that and how it's impacted our community. And there's definitely the recognition of stress behind that. I mean, and then also mindfulness, approaching it from that level, I I know that you always have to have a buy-in. Any type of program, any type of thing that you introduce within um, at least the Indigenous community, there has to be that buy-in. In my community, it was like, okay, this is a part of who we are. Our culture is tight. You know, there's parallels to our culture and our teaching. And Hajon is um, is the middle way. That is the path. And how do we maintain that? Because as human beings, we are meant to be here. And so for the cornerstone of our teaching was is which is clanship, love, and those love and compassion those are the groundedness and those are the middle way, you know, not just for each other as relatives, but for ourselves. And it seems like within our profession, we always forget ourselves and our teachers, they forget themselves because they care and love so much. Mm -hmm. And even also part of that barrier as well is like, they feel like, well, I don't have time to do that now, you know, I'm okay now. But I think my job is just to Put that to the forefront and say, I'm here, you know, like if you need this, you want to do this, you know, but I'm also sensitive to, we don't want to require it and push it down, you know, Mm. but we also want to make sure that they know that they feel support if they call on it and they need it. I'm there. I know you work in this indigenous setting and you bring all that rich understanding and awareness and history, and it really dovetails beautifully with the mindfulness ethic and and what that's all about. But for those non-Indigenous school psychologists out there who you must bump into occasionally, I'm assuming you do. Oh, yeah. In all kinds of, in all all kinds, yeah. What would you say to them? What could they be doing right now for their own benefit or to improve their conditions in their schools from your deep and long experience. What are your conversations like with them? Yes, we have many allies and many dedicated colleagues out there that do the meaningful work that definitely have the best hearts and the best intentions. They do the work within our community. And I know there are some struggles there in terms of, am I doing this right? What should I be doing? Or learning about the communities from which, you know, they are working with, you know, really learning about not just the challenges that they that we face because we all know within our communities we we deal with the isms probably about two times the national average and so coming in with that intentional heart that desire to help is good but there does actually have to be some groundwork for that as well though you yourself as a as a person 
you need to ensure that you have done some self-healing for yourself. Mm-hmm. I think that's the most important is that because in mindfulness, we we bring attention to how we cause ourselves suffering and bringing that attention to that suffering. Um, but there also has to be action. Doing some of that healing is necessary to ensure that reciprocity, that reciprocal relationship, establishing those relationships. You know, you don't just come into a community and demand respect. There has to be that legwork and that groundiness of and that understanding of because people know ultimately the reasons why you're there. <laughs> and so that intent is just so important. And then building those reciprocities is that two-way relationship. Ultimately, we know when somebody's just come into our community for their own reason. And really working on what are those triggers if you work in a community that is not from your own dominant cultural background, you know, or is different. And even just speaking from working in different Indigenous communities as an Indigenous person yourself, there's always protocols and ways in which to engage. I think that's a really important understanding to have. But self-healing and just that intentional healing is so important for myself and being a relative. It's helped me to be a better relative. It's helped me to be a better colleague. It's helped me to be a better mother. Uh, mindfulness may not, you know, uh, from the approach of the um, science perspective, is working in the schools, is working in many schools. But being able to implement that, you need to do your own self-healing. And I guess that's kind of what I'm coming down to. Yeah, right. right. For, you know. And are you, are, do you also feel like in your field of school psychologists that that is lacking? Or, or are we in a new period, maybe the pandemic spurred this on, that people are more in touch with their own needs and their own perspectives and assumptions and biases and, you know, all, all of that stuff, that there was some kind of forced self-reflection. We had to kind of stop and rethink a whole lot of things have we like snapped back and now we're just back to the way no, we were before <laughs> or do you think there's some lasting genuine it starts with me and then if i'm okay yeah. then i can help other people be okay but if i'm not okay yeah I, I think there's always that hope the way in which some of our community members have framed the covid period the cult from the cultural perspective it is met for a reason it was met for us to reset as you said. For some people, it has brought such awareness, such blessings there in terms of being more engaged and being grateful and being more compassionate. And so those are all gifts that COVID has brought. Yes, there is the suffering, but but there has been some great awareness for us. as sustained. Yes. Mm -hmm. I think you're right. There is a phase of now we've come out of this we're okay. And now it's back to the old patterns, you know? Yeah. It's really hard to resist. Yeah. But we can't afford that. And I think some Mm -hmm. people have recognized that Mm -hmm. we can't afford to live that way anymore. We can't Mm -hmm. avoid to, uh, we can't just exist anymore. We have to actively make our world a better place. Let's hope it's enough so that it can continue to propel us forward. Working Well is brought to you by the National Center on Safe Supported Learning Environments at the American Institutes for Research. This podcast is funded by the U.S. Department of Education. If you'd like to learn more about Nestle, visit safesupportivelearning.ed.gov.
For all questions or feedback, you can email us at nestleatair.org. Thanks for listening. Please note, the contents of this podcast do not necessarily represent the policy or views of the U.S. Department of Education, nor does it imply endorsement by the U.S. Department of Education.